stand with me as we read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another day after day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For we who were those, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, would you guide us today, delight us with yourself, and teach us, help us that we might hold fast. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray this all in his name. Amen. The book of Hebrews is written by a Jewish author, and he's very familiar with the Old Testament. He writes to a Jewish audience. These are Jews who have converted to Christianity, though. And he encouraged them to to continue in their pursuit of Christ in spite of a world around them that would be pushing them either away from Christ toward Judaism or or to let it go altogether. The theme of Hebrews could be stated, staring at the sun, S-O-N, Jesus Christ, to see life clearly. And in the book Breakdown, we're in this first section of the book in chapter 1, 1 through 4, 13, that has this focus on Christ as the Son being the ultimate king, and thus he both has and is the better message from God. Previously, we've talked about the start of chapter 3, where we see Christ as the apostle, the messenger from God to us. And we see Christ as the high priest there in verse 1, an intercessor for us to God. He compares then Jesus with Moses, both who are faithful, but Jesus as the Son is the only one who's able to bring us into God's family. When we look at verse 6 there, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, and he ends with it, your one true source of joy found in God alone. Only faithfully holding fast to Christ and all he is will keep you from, from walking away, from letting go, abandoning This one true source of fulfillment, God. And so we're going to walk through the text. We're going to do it a little out of order. If you have your sermon notes, you'll see we're going to start at the beginning with a quotation by David, then we're going to jump to the end, actually, talking about an exposition about Israel. And finally, we'll come back to the middle, talking about how how does this all apply to us. So, So we'll start 
in verses 7 through 11 with this quotation given by David. The, the heart is hardened. In verse 10, we see the heart is, is led astray, goes astray. We'll get back to this more later, but it fits that the king, who is a man after God's own heart, would be one who cares deeply about the heart. If you've had a chance to read through Psalm 95 and you read through it here in Hebrews, you'll notice there are, there are a few differences too, and we want to talk about those a little bit. The author directly quotes not from the original Hebrew, which is where Psalm 95 is from, but he quotes from a translation, the Septuagint. It's a Greek version of the old Hebrew text. And he seems to add even more to our understanding of Psalm 95 than we would see just if we looked at Psalm 95 itself. Specifically, he expands our understanding of, of two things, of Israel's continual sin and God's continual grace. The first difference we see is in chapter 3, verse 8. Psalm 95, 8 says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. Psalm 95 seems to point to a very specific time period in Israel's history. They're in the wilderness in Exodus 17, and they've left Egypt, and they've come to this place where there is no water. And very typical Israel starts to complain and whine. God, why didn't we have water? Are you leaving us here to die? We should just go back to Egypt. They complain to God. He's trying to kill them. So God tells Moses, strike the rock. This is the first time and he's supposed to strike the rock and he gives them water. Very interesting if you get a chance to go to Psalm 95. I really think that's why David calls God the, the rock of our salvation there in verse one. And so according to Exodus 17, seven, Moses named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested Yahweh saying, is Yahweh among us or not? Yet here in Hebrews verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8, the author uses a more literal translation of those words. Meribah is translated strife, contention, rebellion, and Massa is translated testing or trial. That in itself might not be as big a deal, but you can find that with the later verses 9 and 10, and we start to get a bigger picture of what the author is saying here. Verses 9 and 10 in, in Psalm 95 state, when, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation. It, it seems to show God's loathing taking place for the 40 years of the wilderness wandering. He, he detests them. He hates them in their actions of sin. And yet the author here quotes the Septuagint, and it changes the focus a little bit. It seems to indicate that during that 40-year time period— it's not God's anger that is the issue, but God graciously kept showing them himself and in his faithfulness to Israel, he shows them himself in spite of their continual rebellion. He says in verse 9 and 10, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Here's how Nehemiah 9 puts it. Speaking to God, you and your great compassion did not forsake them in the world and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. So, so why is the author here taking this translation instead of the original Psalm 95 version? 
I would suggest that the, the whole point of the author's choice here is to demonstrate God's continual faithfulness and Israel's faithlessness. He's building on a chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, where we see Christ as faithful. And faithlessness then brings us to the author's exposition of the passage in verses 15 through 19. So that second point, the exposition about Israel. The author begins by delving more into the text, drawing especially from other passages like Numbers 14 and Psalm 78 to explain it and what has happened to Israel in the history that's going on that he's quoting from. He requotes verse 15. In verse 15, he requotes verses 7 and 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me or when they rebelled against me. And he focuses then on this, this provocation, this rebellion, and the results of it. He asks and answers three rhetorical questions there in, in verses 16 through 18. Three whom questions based on Psalm 95. First, he says, who, who provoked or rebelled? There in verse 16, focusing back to verse 8. He says, with whom was God angry and provoked? In verse 17, focusing back to verse 10. And then he says, with whom did God swear? In verse 18, focusing back to verse 11. He's drawing these questions out of the passage that he's quoted from. What he's referencing here seems to be Israel's response to the 12 spies returned from Canaan. Moses sends these 12 men, one from each tribe, out to Canaan to see the good land that God has promised them. They get there. They're ready to go in. They seek it out. They come back. Joshua and Caleb, the two of the spies, are like, it's awesome, guys. There is so much great stuff. God has kept his word. He's provided. It is just wonderful. We've got to do this. And the other 10 say, yeah, it's great, but there's really big giants, and we have very small people. They've got a lot. We've got a little. They're big and bad. There's no way we can do this and survive. Israel's response to these statements then, Numbers 14, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, what, that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better to, for us to return to Egypt? So the Lord responds. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times. The, the summary of this, those who saw God work in the Exodus and through Moses heard him tell them to take the promised land that he had promised to them, chose instead of believing God to disobey him, and instead of trusting him, turn away, which led to them not entering the promised land and ultimately dying outside of it in the wilderness. The, the author's conclusion from this, or the, the heart of the matter, if you give that pun as we talk about the heart, is summarized in verse 19. Ultimately, 
They don't enter because of unbelief. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief leads to missing out on God's promises. Jude 5 says it this way, The Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. What's, what's the point of this? Why, why is the author saying this? What's the point of the exposition here? There's a great danger of being like, or fearful being so close to God. Being people who, who know God's promises offered to them like Israel did the covenant God made with Abraham to give him the promised land. And yet, being people who don't really know God. Christ, if we hold fast, firm, until the end. The only way to know if someone has a heart of true belief is ultimately them brethren, brothers, sisters. In verse 1, he calls them holy and partakers of a heavenly calling. He calls them part of Christ's family in verse 6. He labels himself with them as we who have become partakers of Christ in verse 14. And he assumes that none of them will be hardened in verse 13. Unlike the Jews of the Exodus under the Old Covenant and led by Moses who had a majority fall away and act faithlessly toward God with only a righteous remnant left to enter the promised land, the author of Hebrews shows that true believers under the New Covenant indwelt by the Holy Spirit, led by Christ, are unable to maintain actions. What the author is saying is it is possible to look like a part of the new covenant community of the church found in Christ alone, see him at work in life circumstances around you, and yet never truly have your heart changed from one of unbelief. This is how Jesus says it. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons, and in your name, perform miracles. How do we respond to these things? The first application that's given is, is we should watch ourselves. Watch yourself. Look at verse 12. He says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Notice the author here is, is talking to the, to the brethren, to the, the church as a whole, and yet this is personal. Take care. See. Watch. Guard yourself. The verb there is this idea of continuing to be watchful. Make this a regular practice. This is not a one-time glance up and go do your own thing, but is a, is a continual, daily, moment-by-moment moment watching of yourself. What are we to watch for? He says, watch for this, this evil, unbelieving heart that would fall away, that they would forsake, desert, withdraw, depart from the living God. He's building off verse 10, the quotation there from Psalm 95 that says, they always in death like those who fell in the wilderness. Why do they go astray then? What, what, what causes them to fall away? 
I think the rest of the quotation in verse 10 has that answer. They always go astray in their, in their hearts, and they did not know my ways. Though Israel had seen God's great power and kindness toward them, repeatedly they were quick to forget his actions, instead looking to their present circumstances. That is the same danger we each face today. Instead of remembering who God is in his nature and character, clinging to his promises, looking to his past actions of faithfulness for us in our lives, on our behalf, we often quickly get distracted by the current big issues we're facing today that seem to overwhelm us. And thus we either forget about or suppose falsehoods about our God. In light of that, here's, here's a few questions I would encourage you to write down to process through some, some self-assessment questions as you think about watching yourself. First, what do I believe about God and what do I believe about me? What do I believe about God and what do I believe about me? Do I believe I am here for God's glory or do I believe that he is here for my benefit? Who is to serve whom? I'm not talking about what would you theoretically say, because that's easy enough for us to say, but, but what do I truly in my heart of hearts believe about God and myself? Here's another question. How do I typically respond when hard things enter my life? What's my typical response when hard things come into my life, cross my path? Do I get angry, thinking it unfair or blaming God for the situation? Do I grumble about my circumstance? While this is happening, this hard thing is going on in my life. Israel's true heart is not demonstrated in their truly is. It's not about what I say. It's demonstrated in my actions, my thoughts, when God is not on my path. So the question, then, what do I do if I see this heart in myself? How do I respond if I, if I recognize there, there is this actually knowing God? The answer is the same. Repent. Repent, turn away from pursuing your own ways and instead submit to God. Not my will, but yours be done. Help me trust you, Father. Give my life completely over to you. Second, we're called to warn others. Warn others, verse 13. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage, exhort one another. Some, some other words, beseech, urge, comfort, warn. The root word here is the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit, the, the paraclete, one that's come alongside to help. It's used of the Holy Spirit and actually of Jesus. It's saying here, one commentator writes, believers are to emulate the Spirit and the Son in encouraging faith and faithfulness as they do life with others in the body. We come alongside 
to be this, this one who is doing life with others, encouraging them toward faith. What are we warning them of? What, what, what are we guarding them against? And I was just, there are, there are two parts to our warning, two parts and things that we should be, be watching for and encouraging others away from. We, we talked previously about that idea of going astray earlier. And so, so the first is, is not, them not believing God and what he says is truly good or what he says is truly best for them and will bring them the most joy. When, when we see others struggling to say, God is correct in this, God is good in even the midst of my struggles, when, when there's doubt of God's goodness, that's when we need to step in and encourage the person who's, who's struggling with something in their life that has hardships coming at them, circumstances that seem to overwhelm, and as they're starting to, to drown, to be overwhelmed by these things and see these things coming at them, and instead of looking to Christ, they're, they're looking down at these things around them. We, we must encourage them. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Look at him. He's talking about here being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's this, this reference back to verse 8 where it talks about, do not harden your hearts. That's when they rebelled. is when they provoked me. The verb there is talking about a hardening that happens over time as we stay in the deceptive presence of sin. It's not immediate hardening. It's this gradual hardening. It's a, it's a callous forming from being in the presence of sin, being rubbed by sin in close proximity to hit, leads to this callous, hard heart toward God and toward truth. It's connected with the idea of a sinful pleasure that connects to chapter 11, verse 25, the passing pleasures of sin. It's saying that sin makes the claim of an option that will bring me more joy, more... It brings forth death. What are some ways that sin can deceive us? How might we find ourselves being deceived by sin in its presence? One, thinking that Jesus plus something will satisfy. I like Jesus, but I just need this as well to really be happy, to be satisfied. If I can just keep this, th do that, that could really be great thinking that, that it has something that would benefit, that I'm missing out by not doing it. Or the reverse of that, seeing righteousness as only this, this hard, dreary duty rather than a loving, joyous response offered to a God who loves. That's why we are called to encourage, to exhort one another. You think of a group of people, maybe some homeless folks under a bridge, and there's, there's snow coming down, and it's freezing cold outside, and they're, they're huddled together. They share their body heat to stay warm, to not die, to survive. And one decides they're going to go off and do their own thing. Here they are together in safety. They have warmth enough to survive. One goes off, abandons the group, freezes to death, and dies. We need one another. We need others to remind us of truth. I need when my heart is cold toward God, you with, the, with that flaming joy of being in his presence to come and warm my dead heart. Speak life into me. Remind me the truth of who God is and what he's done. We need others to hear us pondering falsehood and correct our thinking to, to align us with God's word. 
that we would think rightly, that they help us so we don't stay in sin's presence, but we move away, we move back toward truth, that we not be hardened. This is why being actively involved and open in your life with other believers is so key. This is why we have ministries like, like care groups at our church, and we do things like discipleship and biblical counseling. We want to have life-on-life relationships where there's safety to share. Here's my heart, and it's not nice, and I, I'm deceived. I, I want sin. I think this looks good, and God doesn't look very joyous to me right now. And we're able to speak to each other and remind each other of the truth. We, we need to combat sin's feeble lies of pleasure then with the wonderful character of our God. As we see those being hardened, as we see our hearts being hardened, we must combat this with the character of our God. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. It, it builds on this idea from verse 10. We've already discussed that they don't know God's ways. Their hearts are going astray because they did not salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us come before his presence with joyous song and psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Our faith and our encouragement to others that their faith might grow must be based in the character of God for it to last, for it to stand the test of time. Which brings us then to verse 14. The author writes, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. He's building off of verse 6 that led into this section. Hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope Firm until the end. We've talked about the actions of holding fast. These two applications of watching ourselves and warning others. But, but what is our hope for that? Feeble, weak, and wayward as we are. Hearts that would quickly wander from the good shepherd. How in the world can I have any hope of holding fast? Our hope comes in this verb. We have become partakers. We have come to share in Christ. This verb implies a finished progress that results in an abiding state of being. Finished progress an abiding state of being. The author is not saying it is up to us to hold fast. Like a sailor tossed overboard, clinging to a lifeline from the boat, his only hope of salvation, hoping against hopes that his hands won't weaken, that his grip won't slip, that nothing but his two anemic hands 
can he rely on to keep him from drowning in the deep? He's not saying we only get to partake of Christ or only get to be in his family if we hold fast. Rather, the author is stating because of Christ on our behalf. Nothing more is necessary. Nothing more can be done. In the recognition of Christ's work and enabling power of his presence, we are then called and equipped to live and hold fast in light of our union with Christ. Christ is not a a mere rope for us to cling to, hoping to get to safety from the ocean's raging storm. He's the life vest we are firmly strapped into, the lifeline that tethers us back to safety, the, the boat that will draw. Father, we thank you for Jesus.